So while we'll be focusing mainly on the first 15 verses, I'll read the entire chapter for context. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard of the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. That ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Please join me now in prayer. Father, as we now approach your word this evening, uh, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us that we might take seriously what it has to say to us. 
But Lord, that we would hear your voice and that we would block out all others. That you would give us the power of your spirit so that our eyes might be opened, Lord, both to see our own sin, but also to see the provision that you have made for us in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Foundations are extremely important in all different areas of life. In the realm of construction, whether you're going to build a house or whether you're going to build a hundred floor skyscraper, you need to dig low if you're going to build high. There must be a solid foundation. In education, if someone is going to uh, say that they're going to go on and get their medical degree and they're going to become a doctor, well, they need a good foundation in the uh, different levels of education as they build up towards getting their doctorate. And in the realm of a Christian worldview, it's important that we have a solid foundation. And the book of Genesis is just full of different foundational texts where if they were not in the Bible, we would have an impoverished theology. It teaches us uh, what we're to believe about the origins of man, the origins of sin, all different types of beginnings. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul writes on various aspects of Christian theology and he wants to build an argument, what does he do? Well, in Romans chapter 5, when Paul is uh, defending and articulating the doctrine of original sin, he reaches back to the book of Genesis, speaking of uh, the first Adam, but also pointing us to the second. When Paul is addressing uh, the universality of, of sin, he directs us back to this book. And so it's a book full of foundations. And uh, we also see within this third chapter of the book of Genesis, the, the origin of sin. And I want us to, to look at this familiar text and to, to take three different points. But I want us to, as we reflect on this text, uh, be called once more and afresh to repent and believe in the gospel. So we can divide this text. We're, we're going to look at three different points. First, the, the first temptation in verses 1 through 5. Uh, secondly, the first sin in verse 6. And then finally, in verses 7 through 15, uh, we'll look at the first gospel. So we'll start first with the first temptation in verses 1 to 5. Now, just a, a bit of background as we dive into chapter 3. Of course, as we know, Genesis 3 comes after Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, wonderful truths are presented to the Christian reader. We read in verse 1 of chapter 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That He created all things, everything that we see. He created the stars that shine in the night sky. He created the moon, the sun that rises and warms the earth, that uh, causes different plants to grow. He's the one who created all the different beasts of the field. He created the great uh, sea monsters that roam around in the ocean. And the crown and the crescendo of his creation is his creation of Adam and Eve, man and woman, man in the image of God. And if we were to just remove chapter 3 from our Bibles, we would be wondering uh, what happened from chapters 1 and 2 to the rest of the Bible. If, if for example, you had a, a family member who at the beginning of the day, they were all dressed up in their finest, and they went out the door, 
And then they came back at the end of the day and their clothes were tattered and covered in mud. What would be your first question? What happened? What happened to you that your, your clothes are absolutely destroyed? Apart from Genesis 3, we would wonder what has happened to God's good created order. And we find the answer here in chapter 3. We see first that there is a being that is created. Uh, The book of Revelation is helpful for interpreting this third chapter of Genesis because it says that the the serpent is that, that ancient serpent, the ancient dragon who tempts the people of God and who wants to see their destruction. And it's this serpent who is being used as, a, as an instrument by Satan in order to tempt Adam and Eve, and specifically here, to tempt Eve. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created man. He first gave to Adam the charge to be fruitful and to multiply, the charge not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he, Adam is the one who not only named the animals, but later on in this chapter, we'll see he also named Eve. And within the relationship, Adam is to be the leader. And Eve is to be supportive and submissive to her husband. And yet, one of the devices of Satan is that he, he starts first with Eve rather than with Adam. And we see here some some. Crafty, crafty devices of this serpent. Indeed, Thomas Brooks in his uh, short work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, starts that one of the, with one of the ways that Satan will tempt uh, the people of God is that he will show them the bait and he'll hide the hook. That he'll, he'll show them the, the, the wonderful things that he's offering them, but they don't realize he's trying to entrap them. And that's what we'll see here with Eve and the serpent. He begins his temptation and the the first temptation of our first parents, uh, not with a a frontal assault, not with uh, outwardly denying the word of God, but rather with just inserting a a tone and a, a little bit of questioning. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And if we... If we look at the text carefully, we see that he's doing some very, very interesting things. First, he is placing doubt within Eve's mind. Doubt regarding the word of God. Did he, did he actually say that? And then secondly, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, of course, we know that the command was you're not supposed to eat of a particular tree in the midst of the garden. He nowhere said you are not allowed to eat of all the trees. And yet Satan is maximizing the prohibition. Even though it is, this is not accurate, he's maximizing the prohibition before Eve. And Eve, as she responds, it's, it's questionable whether or not she has misunderstood the command or whether Adam failed to Uh, fully articulate the command to her. Because she responds that they may eat of the trees, but they're just not supposed to eat of that particular tree. Neither are they supposed to touch it. And yet, within God's initial command, that that was never a part of it. So we're not sure exactly why it is that she wasn't able to correctly communicate the command of God. 
But then Satan doubles down and he flatly denies the word of God. And the Hebrew text, the very first word that comes out of Satan's mouth is no or not. So it would be not you shall surely die. No, you will not surely die. And so he, he denies the very word of God, but he's also die, denying the doctrine of, of God's judgment. He's saying, if you do this, God is not going to bring judgment upon you. No. No, instead, he may be uh, trying to keep something from you that would allow you to be the person that you need to be. Apart from eating this fruit, you, you just won't be fully human. You need to be more like God than you really, really are. And so what Satan is doing is he is twisting the word of God. He is distorting it in order that he might tempt Eve. If you've ever been to a museum or maybe a fair where there's a fun house with these mirrors that distort your image. So that if you stand before the mirror, it might make you look like you're seven feet tall. Or it might make you look like you're very short. It might uh, twist the, the image so that it makes you look skinny as a rail or three times as, as wide as you really are. That's what Satan is doing. He's twisting the Word of God around in order to cause Eve to fall into sin. But it's at this point that what she needs to do most and what both Adam and Eve need to do most is to stand squarely upon the Word of God and value His Word above anything else. It doesn't matter if the fruit looks attractive. God has spoken and will stand on His Word. It is the only sure thing that they have. I recall when I was uh, maybe about five or six years old, I was thinking about this uh, this afternoon. Uh, there was one Sunday night where my family was having uh, family devotions and uh, we were going through a particular uh, book where it had activities for little children. And uh, this particular activity called for uh, my parents to set up mouse traps all over the uh, living room floor. So there would be uh, live mouse traps where if you stepped on them, it would really hurt your foot. And the children were instructed to take off their shoes and put on a blindfold. And then they would have to listen to the voice of their parents to guide them through the room full of mousetraps. So that if you did not obey the voice of one who had eyes to see and the ability to look at the different obstacles, you were going to get your foot snapped. Now, of course, I, I, I trusted my parents very much. And they, they loved me and they were going to tell me the truth. But in the world that we live today, we are up against much more than getting our, our foot snapped with a mousetrap. We, we live in a world where not only do we have other, other sinners that would like to see us fall, uh, but we are also up against a real spiritual being named Satan who would like to see nothing better than individual Christians fall apart, burn out, sin out, whatever it might be, and different churches fall apart, fall into disunity, fall into sin, fall into complacency, fall into liberalism. Satan would love that. And apart from the Word of God and the perspective of the One who has made this world, 
we, we do not have a hope. We must tie ourselves to the Word of God if we are going to make it through. We'll look next at the first sin. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So at this point, Eve is going against the word of God. She says, I'm going to listen to this uh, deceiver, this, this serpent, instead of the God who made me. I'm going to listen to uh, my own heart and, and take of this, this fruit. I'm, I'm sure it was very, very attractive. Uh, we, don't, we certainly don't know for sure that it was an apple in, in po- popular uh, art and literature, very often it's, it's pictured as an apple, but it simply says uh, fruit. But she takes it and she eats it, and notice also that she gives it to Adam, her husband, who was with her, who was right there with her. And so rather than Adam, first of all, stopping things right away and saying, nope, I'm going to take this serpent who is uh, tempting us to deny the word of God. I'm going to take him and call out to the Lord and call upon judgment for the serpent. No, he's quiet. But even when his wife eats, rather than coming before her and saying, dear wife, what have you done? Let, let us go before the Lord and, and seek forgiveness. No, he takes, he takes part and he sits by passively. And as we study the rest of the Bible, particularly Paul's epistle to the Romans, we find out that this is an incredibly central text. That nothing will be the same after Genesis 3, chapter 6. Nothing will be the same for God's creation. And that is because Adam, uh, as we were told this morning, that there are various uh, covenants throughout the Bible. Adam was called upon to be the the covenant head. He was called upon to be the uh, one who was uh, who is the head of all of humanity. And so, when Adam sinned, what he did was not only did he sin for himself, but he sinned as representative for the rest of humanity. Nothing will ever be the same. A, a, illustration of this would be if a nation goes to war against another nation, the citizens also go to war. And so with this sin, Adam has entered into hostility with God. There there is no longer peace, but rather he has rebelled against his maker. And so this, this verse, we ought to take it to heart. It ought to drive us to the point where we recognize and we fully confess if, if we're just going to live in and of ourselves, we have no hope. If As long as we are uh, linked with Adam, we, we have no hope. We are in rebellion against God. The only way that there is going to be hope is if God himself intervenes. And that brings us to our third and final point, which is the first gospel. Verses 7 through 15. Now, as soon as they eat, 
The text says that the, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they begin to try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. And if you look at verse 8, this is a, uh, one of the texts where the translation is a bit disputed. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Or if you have a, a footnote, uh, it may say Hebrew wind of the day. Another way it could be translated is, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking back and forth in the wind of the storm. And if, if that is how it's taken, this is not uh, hearing the Lord walking around at a, as a, at a pleasant point in the evening, uh, but rather God is coming in anger and in judgment in the first storm theophany. And as they hear God coming, for the first time ever in their entire existence, their very Maker is coming to them and He's not coming to have sweet fellowship with them. He's coming in judgment because they have sinned. The wrath of Almighty God is going to burn. And they hide themselves. But note, when God finally calls out, He does address first Adam. Even though it's Eve who first ate the fruit, it is Adam who is called onto the carpet. And He says, where are you, Adam? Where are you, covenant head? And any time in the Scriptures where we see God asking questions, we, we need to keep in mind, it is not that God is lacking information. It is... His way of drawing His people out. It is His way of causing His people to reflect on the particular circumstances in which they find themselves. For instance, in the book of Jonah, when God questions Jonah and He says, do you do well to be angry? God knows He shouldn't be angry. But it causes Jonah to reflect. And so Adam is going to need to reflect. Why are you hiding? Hiding because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? And as soon as, as, soon as the, the dialogue begins, that's also when the blame shifting begins. First, Adam says, it's the woman that you gave to me. That's why I ate the fruit. And so he puts the blame as, as far away from himself as he possibly can, even bringing God into it and, and, and saying God is, is somewhat at fault. The woman also shifts the blame. It's the serpent who, who deceived me. And with, with that, then the, the, the judgment begins in verses 14 and following, both, both judgment and salvation. And it is in these verses where we see for the first time a development of, of two different lines that are going to stretch throughout redemptive history. That is the, the line of the seed of the woman and the line of the seed of the serpent. This can be illustrated in First uh, John chapter 3, uh, where John is talking about why Cain killed his brother Abel. And he said because he was of the devil. That is, he was of the, the line of the serpent. But it's here that we see first... The serpent is cursed, man is not. The serpent is directly cursed, but even when we get down to uh, the curse that's going to fall and, uh, upon man and affect man, Adam is never directly cursed, it's the ground that is cursed. 
And indeed, as you study the rest of the book of Genesis, only those who are of the line of the serpent will ever be directly cursed. Never God's people. But it's here in verse 15 that we have uh, what is sometimes called the, the, the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion. And William Bridge, who is a, a Westminster divine, said this. He said, the Lord himself came and preached the gospel, preached Christ unto fallen man. How is it that Christ was preached to fallen man in Genesis 3.15? Well, first of all, Adam and Eve are not going to be killed on the spot. They're going to have seed. They're going to have offspring that's going to continue. And eventually, we're not told exactly when this will happen in redemptive history, but eventually it is the seed of the woman who's going to be the promised Messiah who is going to put an end to the works of the devil and the devil himself. And of course, we know that this is fulfilled with Christ putting an end first to sin at the cross, but ultimately he will come back and destroy the devil and throw him into the lake of fire, as it tells us in Revelation 20. And so we are called to repent and believe in the gospel. How so? If you look in verse 20, you'll see that the Lord God provided garments for Adam and Eve after they were uh, right before they were going to be cast out of the the garden. Now, these garments would have provided the clothing necessary for the uh, immediate future. And yet what they needed was the garments of righteousness that only Christ can provide. What and who do we look to for garments of righteousness in order to come into the presence of God? Do we look to ourselves in order to make ourselves right before God? Or are we looking to another? Do we, have we come to the point where we recognize, as we see in verse 6, that things will never be the same, that we cannot earn our way to heaven, that we cannot earn our good standing with God? Or do we look to another? Fast forward a few thousand years and we find ourselves at the foot of Golgotha, where Christ is being hoisted up onto a cross, and those uh, Roman soldiers are gambling over his garments. And it's upon the, Christ, uh, upon the cross where Christ is naked and dying so that his people can be clothed with his righteousness. Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner wrote, God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. We can reflect on that next time we are taking the Lord's Supper, holding the crumbling piece of bread, and we hear the words take and eat. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. God loves his people so much. Christ loves his people so much that he has done everything that we need in order to be made right with God. If you've ever been to the ocean and just look out over the horizon and all you can see is water as far as you can see, just think for a moment if you were taken out of this church building and you were placed in a small rowboat in the middle of the ocean. You could row all day 
to the north, you will never find shore. All, all day to the south, you will not find shore. Whatever direction you, find, you go, you will not find the shore. And that is just a small picture of the love of Christ for His people. You will not find the bottom of Christ's love for His elect. And so as we celebrate Thanksgiving this next coming week, as we perhaps even sit around the table with our loved ones, be thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be thankful that He has called you into fellowship with Himself. Be thankful that He has called you to repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is so very important to Jesus. And we know that because if you crack open the gospel of Mark, and you see when Jesus began His earthly ministry... Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May we do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, this first heralding of the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for the perspective that you've given us, where we see that all the promises that you have given us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we eagerly look forward to the day when, Lord, you take full possession of this earth in the sense that you forever rid it of sin. We look forward to the day when righteousness reigns from sea to sea, and, Lord, all in creation will bow the knee to you. We pray that we would be thankful, and, Lord, that we would uh, be grateful and treasure the word that you have given to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.